Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Lakestar, one of the leading European venture capital firms. Lakestar's mission is to find, fund, and grow disruptive businesses that are enabled by technology and founded by exceptional entrepreneurs in Europe and beyond. Founded by Klaus Ammels, the team's early investments include Skype, Spotify, Facebook, and Airbnb. And since raising its first fund in 2012, Lakestar now manages an aggregated volume of over 2.8 billion euros across their early and growth stage funds. The team actively advises and supports portfolio companies in marketing, recruitment, technology, product development, and regulatory insight, accompanying founders from seed to early stage, growth stage, or exit. Lakestar's games and media team has made 18 investments, including 1047 Games, Zebedee, Modulate, and Trace. If you're interested in learning more or getting in contact with the Lakestar team, simply go to lakestar.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker. And with me, I have some great panelists, as always. We've got Dave Elton here and Maria as well. How are you guys doing? Just, uh, I like your Fry t-shirt. Yeah, trying to try to keep it interesting here visually. For the, those <laughs> people that watch the actual video. I brought Dorian one with me. I also wanted a friend. So uh, we have some good topics today, though, uh, as far as the news goes. Just not a lot of them. Microsoft with an interesting one around their milestones, I guess, for, for pay bumps or bonuses uh, around Xbox. Should be interesting to dig into that. Uh, FaZe Clan, fortunately, maybe a happy ending for them, maybe not. And then Netflix still trying to act like they know what they're doing. And so we'll dig into that a little bit. Uh, Whoa, just, shots fired already. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the topic, but let's just start with Microsoft's one. Uh, a little softball topic for Dave there. Uh, what's going <laughs> on with the CEO? All right, we'll, we'll ease into things here before we get to the big stuff. Okay, so for the first time in three years, the CEO for Microsoft does not have a specific growth milestone target for Xbox Game Pass. Now, when you look at targets, especially when CEO's pay base is based on performance-based targets, and I think Dell's targets is something like 90% of his pay is based on him hitting targets. You know, that is the way for the company, the board directors and them to steer, you know, what or, or really visibly post what the um, targets are for uh, the company or what's important for the company over the course of the next year. So the fact that Xbox Game Pass has been pulled from that, that starts to raise a few questions in terms of where does Game Pass sit inside of its the overall importance for the company. So is this a case of they feel that Game Pass has you know reached its goals and it's time for you know to set some new goals, set some new um, areas of, of you know, focus for the CEO, or is it something else? Now, one of the questions that I have is: Is the Game Pass really, you know, really getting to where they want it to go? So, last year, Microsoft aimed for about seventy percent, seventy-three percent growth for their subscriber numbers for Game Pass. 
And the actual result was around 28%. So for me, the question is, you know, is this something that, you know, Xbox has seen, we've done a, a good shot at Game Pass, and we're going to kind of, kind of see where it goes from here? Or, you know, do they actually feel like they've they've kind of reached their their level that they're happy with and are now going to focus on other parts of the Xbox business overall. Now, Xbox accounts for about 10% of Nadella's uh, overall targets. I think one of the cloud areas is his largest target region at about 30%. But still, I mean, 10% is a, a good chunk when your pays in the 40s to 50s of millions of dollars. You know, it's always good to be able to earn that extra $5 million if, you, if you're able to hit your targets. So I'm curious, you know, what what Maria and Devin, what you guys think, you know, is the Xbox Game Pass, you know, slowly being, um, you know, not something that they're going to, you know, do away with. I think it's it is still a, a very successful program for them. But is it now out of the spotlight? Do they feel comfortable with where it is, or is it something else? So you mentioned uh, the accounts. Does the CEO still have other targets related to Xbox? I think it's overall growth, probably. I didn't take a look at what all the individual components were, but typically Xbox as a whole is about 10% of his performance pay. And that's what's been removed with the with the Game Pass? The Game Pass specifically has been removed as one of those targets. Like one of the other targets was also that growth of the of the Xbox game division revenue by 4.4%. And I think they and they reached like 0.7%. So yeah. Um, they do. I mean, there are a number of components inside each of those performance things, but yeah. the Xbox Game Pass was something for the last three years, and it could very well have been. Hey, you know, we don't need this on the CEO's focus. Maybe this just is now entirely on Phil's plate, and it may be up to Phil Spencer to to cover that entirely. But you know, the fact that it's it was on the CEO's plate for three years, it's now been removed. For me, is a is an interesting point, especially now that. They've got a whole whack of new games about to start coming up on the Game Pass with the Activision purchase funding closing. This to me is aligned. I have two things going through my mind that it could be a negotiation, a renegotiation to get targets that are potentially, you know, more reasonable to hit. And looking at Xbox Game Pass specifically, perhaps was not the best incentive or the right place to focus. And it comes back to, I think we had this discussion last time or one of the last times I was on the panel about what role does Xbox Game Pass actually play in Microsoft? And so it could be that that specific growth milestone trying to keep on pushing it, perhaps will it be a, you know, a perverse incentive and lead to not the best decisions for the business overall. It could be playing a role that is best measured with growth in other areas. For example, cloud that you mentioned. And I I personally am not reading into it that the growth of Xbox, Xbox Game Pass itself is no longer relevant. We saw it starting to plateau, but its role and performance may have changed and that's being measured through other compensation targets. I guess the question that I, that I have too is is whether or not the, so the targets, you know, are for growth, but what's like the penetration rate versus like the number of people that own Xbox, right? Because that's, I would think the real goal, right? Is to like have a higher number of Xbox owners on the Game Pass. Like they changed the gold membership, for example, to kind of merge it with that sort of thing. I, I 
can't imagine they're trying to target non-Xbox owners that are just on Windows. I I personally have an Xbox Game Pass, and I'm and I don't own own an Xbox Pass to 360, but I do use it for like the cloud stuff and and for new games and things like that. So, like I, but I I'm not the average target market. I don't think so. I I'm wondering if they've already kind of hit those numbers in terms of like penetration uh, of that like percentage of. That. And they're like, okay, well, now we don't need to worry about the growth as much because that was the important part of it is just making sure that maybe a majority of Xbox owners are getting that Game Pass. But then I also, also have to wonder if like they don't want to be overly aggressive with that in the sense that if it's cannibalizing game sales to some extent too, like they don't want everyone relying completely on that. Like if growing it overly aggressively starts to then take away from people buying stuff because they go, well, I have the Game Pass. I'm not going to buy games like obviously like starfield might have been a really interesting one to see if they had like numbers in terms of i mean they had good sales numbers right but i would love to see like how many people either tried it first on there like for free or people that just straight up decided not to buy it by playing it on there you know especially if they were just kind of not happy with what they they played and just like no i'm not gonna buy this obviously games don't stay on there forever kind of like how stuff rotates off netflix so there is you know like some protection i think against some cannibalization but by the time a game comes off, if it was like day one release, like they're not going to get a sale that late into the cycle anyways, right? Which is why games get super discounted. So I guess I wonder if if you have any insight there, Dave, on whether or not like there was some good penetration and they're just pulling back or if it's just like refocusing. Yeah, I don't think they've hit quite the attach rates that they want to. You know, they they were hitting some pretty aggressive targets last year. They fell well short of that. So I don't think they've hit the their attach rate yet. I do expect that they will continue trying to push it. I do think that it still will end up being part of what Phil and the Xbox team are going to focus on, in part because it is, A, it's a bit of that differentiation between themselves and Sony and Nintendo. You know, Nintendo and Sony both have their own versions of it, but they both do not have, you know, that day one release for first party titles that Microsoft has. I'll admit I play Starfield on my Xbox Game Pass. So I do think it is still very much a very important thing. Maria, I think you're right that I think Microsoft as a whole just went, you know, there are bigger fish for them to fry in terms of where Nadell's, you know, focus should be and needs to be. But I do think it'll still be part of Phil's Phil's overall target to try to continue to continue growing that. And I do think the the addition of the the Activision titles will certainly help along those lines as well. Yeah, I can only imagine if people play if people were able to play Diablo Four on that, like, and there was like a high attach rate, like that that could have potentially hurt the sales of that game because people wanting to just be like, I don't know, I'm skeptical now of like Blizzard after you know Diablo Immortal, like I kind of want to just try that. I mean, I had been kind of think in a previous episode here that like I had ended up just refunding Payday Three without even playing it because I realized I could just. I'm from Steam because I realized I could just play it on the the Game Pass and decide first after seeing a lot of the the negative reviews. And I can't imagine that's like, you know, going to be that uncommon of a thing to do if people are skeptical, where like, you know, the the amount of uh, people that buy things like a pre-order, right, for beta access, things like that, and then end up maybe like a little bit burned, maybe that helps avoid that or mitigate that. But the other, the other question I have for you Dave, is, you know, I know the cloud stuff is also part of like a big part of what he's getting the bonuses for and stuff. Now, I do wonder if if that includes the X Cloud stuff for the Xbox Game Pass, right? Because that's all cloud stuff as well 
running on their servers? Or is it just like we're talking like Azure stuff and those kinds of things? Yeah, I know that was enterprise. Okay. Enterprise side of things, yeah. Yeah, I wonder how much overlap there is in the uh, in the actual company as well, right? Because those like they do try and use those enterprise servers as game servers and stuff, right? As well, like they'll try and get game developers to use those. So I imagine there's like some overlap, but probably maybe maybe not with the cloud side of things. They would separate those out in terms okay. of business units, like the um, because that's a, a service that's being provided to others versus okay. games that they're actively, you know, either publishing or releasing something. Makes sense. And, and when did the, the, did it say when this actually happened? Meaning like if he was getting his bonuses, like say at the end of the year, did they do that like immediately at the start of this last year? Like when, when did this happen? Their fiscal year ends end of June. Okay. So it's just like right at the end of that. I mean, like, like when, as soon as the next fiscal year started. They generally, yeah, the fiscal year with the fiscal year, generally they start working on what the, what the performance targets are. Yeah, I just ask because, like, obviously, like, they made that decision at a certain point in time. So I wonder if, like, you know, by, say, June, they'd kind of hit those targets. Obviously, Microsoft hadn't even finished its acquisition yet of Activision Blizzard, but that, you know, that was like a a year plus process. So at some point, they were probably like, all right, that's enough time, you know, to to wait for that. Uh, As I I don't think we're getting most of those games, what they said, until 2024 on Game Pass, anyways. And 2024 is kind of a, a rather large span and as we know like when most people say a date range like that they usually mean the end of it so i'm like expecting <laughs> december 2024 we'll finally get the games for this I, year i think they'll probably trickle them in uh, yeah. i don't think they'll just do one giant batch uh it'll take time for them to put in all of the xbox live login information and make sure that that's all sorted out appropriately it would be interesting to see if they were able to, to use that to try and get people back and to say, let's say, from what I've heard, like 99% of people have churned off Diablo 4, right? I, I don't know how true that is. And I don't know if that changed when Season 2 launched recently and Steam picked up. But I do wonder if like that could be a way to try and bring players back later on, try and get them to purchase Season Passes again, like with, if they've churned, to get people to come back. It's like, well, I got the Game Pass anyways, and technically it's free to play, and then they like dip back in. That might be something that's useful for, for Blizzard and, and Blizzard really having like a lot of trouble with their live service in general. So I don't know, maybe some opportunity there. I guess we'll see what Microsoft does or doesn't do with the company uh, as they run it. But yeah, some interesting stuff as well on some gaming stuff that's uh, working out or not working out in terms of finances. A phase who we've seen go through a bit of a cycle finally managed to get picked up, but not for, I don't think the price they were hoping for. Yeah, well, we can go more into that. I'll do a very quick overview of what my conclusion was. And then, you know, if the conversation leads there, we can dive into more of the specifics. So Face Clan was acquired. It was an all-stock deal by, uh, for $17 million by GameSquare. And I started my analysis, you know, based on how their valuation when they uh, went public with the SPAC, I wanted to understand, like, how good is this deal to get FaZe for $17 million? This is a low number, but what's the actual value that, that they're acquiring? And my conclusion was, it could be a bargain um, if GameSquare's strategy of appealing to brands gets executed. But for them to do that, they really need to get phase clans operations running smoothly and do cost reduction because it's in the losses really. And so, yeah, if they can restructure phase rapidly and the original founders are now rejoining as a leadership of phase, if that mix goes well, there are some concerns there. We can discuss them in, in a little bit. If that goes well, um, I'm actually really excited for the next steps of, of Fates. I think it could become a lean 
independent arm of GameSquare that specializes in attracting and engaging players, well, consumers of Gen Z and Gen Alpha. Because GameSquare's strategy is to create an end-to-end tech and data platform that brands can create partnerships with. So they have the content creators, they have the tech. And so what you know, a lot of traditional brands are now struggling with is to understand the motivations, the interests, the culture of these younger generations. And so bringing FaZe in and having that partnership uh, within GameSquare, I think is yeah, a very strong proposition to brands of, hey, you know, we have a turnkey solution end to end, and we have content creators that are integrated in esports, and they have proven track record of being able to create new esports stars and new content stars, and that can attract and appeal these younger generations. And then I was also looking at GameSquare's history, and it was really interesting. I, it was a good opportunity because you know it's from my fellow country and your country, David. You know, let's go Canada. And I was looking at the history of M and A of uh, GameSquare and how they've been able to integrate operations effectively. And then also they have a proven track record of being able to reduce costs, and they are showing that you know quarter on quarter with being able to get that journey into profitability. And then when we look at all of the businesses that at least contain esports in their business model, I think like GameSquare, seeing GameSquare and then that acquisition of complexity and seeing them diversify their portfolio, they knew that content creation and esports is not a sustainable business model and diversifying it towards having this end-to-end tech platform, having a data platform that allows you to do attribution and understand the return on investment of these content brand partnerships. It makes me hopeful that, you know, FaZe is now with a parent company that knows what it's doing, understands the business model of the market and is integrated in, you know, in this more sustainable business model. And so, yeah, do you have any thoughts about the phase acquisition before I go into more detail? I mean, I'm just curious if, if FaZe said it was a good deal, like when they were, you know, announcing it. Obviously, like a lot of times in these kind of deals, they do like be like, oh, yeah, we're so happy. This was like a wonderful thing for us. But like, was it a pretty positive spin coming out of phase or was it like, a, well, we just took what we could get? I mean, it was silence. Face has face in September. It was a chairperson of the board exited. The CEO was also let go. The contract was terminated a few days later. And now it's come to light that it was part of the acquisition deal that the CEO had to exit. Um, the original founders, well, you know, we go back to the controversy of the original founders because. A big portion of the depreciation of FaZe's value is associated to the original founders being very public in their critiques of the leadership because they brought in, you know, air quote, the suits. And then the suits decided to do this back when clearly the business model and their expectations to become profitable were truthfully unrealistic, even in a bull crypto market. And then it didn't go well. And they started to move away from, you know, esports and they were focusing on because like phases culture was about bringing people into the culture of phase 
becoming brand ambassadors because they loved what FaZe was doing, their connection with the community, the content that they were creating. And again, air quote, the air quote, the suits were more focused on let's bring in these really big names and let's pay them like Snoop Dogg. And as soon as soon things started to go bad in terms of the money that they were making, the people that were being paid left. And they were, you know, focusing their attentions on brand partnerships that weren't, you know, specifically content creation for for esports. Anyway, I, and then there's more controversy about toxic culture, mass layoffs, misogyny, and I won't go into all of that. That's been discussed to a great great lengths. And so, the original founders were very public in their critiquing of the leadership, and there was just a brand downfall, honestly, like face before you would be in a meeting discussing, oh, we want to do a brand partnership and activation with esports and content creators. And everyone would think, yeah, face, face is the right person to do it with. And by the end of, um, yeah, I don't know, this campaign, no one, you know, really wanted to poke a stick at face because of all the, the PR brand image nightmares that they were going through. And so there are a lot of great discussions happening about this. Uh, we'll have to see. I'm more positive in my belief that GameSquare, this is an acquisition. And so even though the original founders are leading it, GameSquare's business model is all about the brand partnerships. And though they have to clean up the image of FaZe, but I think, yeah, to answer your question, David, Devin, it was a message of silence from FaZe. There was a celebration that the original founders are now back. The suits, air quotes, have left. And now it's, you know, in FaZe's hands to rebuild their image and their culture. Yeah, for me, I think the the biggest questions and something I think you'd pose at one point, right, is, the, is it a, a, a marketing thing or is it like a... a big business for profit thing. Like what, what is esports trying to be? I mean, there's been the comparisons between esports and you know traditional sports. But I think the biggest problem is as you look at esports as a whole, is that some of the games are treated as actual business, you know, where you know the games were created, the 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 leagues and everything were created in order to ensure that there's the opportunity for players to make money for you know the the games to actually be seen as a sport. And in other cases, they you know the companies treat the games as or esports versions of the games as marketing exercises. That's all that they're looking for. It's just it's not a revenue generating area of business. It's it's a cost center. And I think part of the challenge that esports has as a whole is that you've got those two different styles of business models all being mixed into you know into the same conversation. You know, in some ways, it's almost the same as if, you know, the, the Dallas Cowboys, they were a for-profit uh, football team and they're going to do all that they can to win. And the Miami Dolphins, they do it just because it's a fun marketing exercise and everyone wants to party in Miami anyways. So let's just bring everybody there to party. You know, but that's not how, you know, real sports are worked. That's not how those organizations do well. Those organizations do well because everyone is trying to, put the best product they can onto the field and make money as, as part of a, an actual business, not as just a marketing exercise. And I think that's where, you know, some of the the promise around esports is, is that there, you do have those opportunities to bring in mass groups of people and large chunks of money. Like if you look at, you know, the prize pools that, that Valve was able to bring in for Dota 2, like the, 
what was it? The, the international, I think in 2021 was like $40 million prize pool, which is fantastic. Now at the same time, Valve came up with a fantastic system where the players actually feed in the majority of that prize pool money themselves rather than Valve putting it up. But, you know, I think people look at that and say, okay, well, this is something we can carry across all of esports, but that's not mm-hmm. what everyone is trying to do. It's different different objectives for different companies. Definitely. And that's why GameSquare's history is very interesting. They they know that and they di- diversified into a sustainable, well, towards a sustainable business model. If we look at Riot. They announced this year that they're still not profitable with their esports, and it's League of Legends. <laughs> if League of Legends can become profitable with esports, like truthfully, this is a marketing spend, and we need to embrace that it is a marketing spend. And even if there's tournaments and prize pools, the prize pools are for your players, and you can't depend on making, you know, having it as a, a sustainable revenue stream. Um, and then additionally, if we're looking at, at esports. It's about the creation. You could focus on trying to get diamond in the rough players and then you sell them, but that that's not really scalable. And it's also a bit luck of the draw. And so, again, I think it's very interesting how GameSquare is focusing on we have esports as a content creation tool we have public personas who are known and beloved by players and create a following through esports you know other content creators create a following through other means and then we're going to do brand partnerships for example they announced that they're in progress to close a deal with a betting company who is going to do activations with their Counter-Strike teams because Counter-Strike has a, a large population of players who are interested in betting. I think that makes sense. Yeah, I can see how how uh, this business model works. So that, that's my takeaway. We've discussed that many times here on the podcast, and so I, I don't want to go too deep into it, but it's time to accept that esports is not traditional sports. The phase valuation at the time was only acceptable through the lens that it was a traditional sports team. It is not. It's a marketing spend, and you know companies need to find sustainable business models if they include esports. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like the the esports are not the same as regular sports. It kind of has to be the the important part to focus on, in the sense that like people are trying to try and adapt a lot of sports models to it. And like, there's parts of it that work, like merch, right? People get, okay, merch, team merch, you sell that. Uh, but all the other parts of regular sports were just built around a very different idea. They're not run by necessarily like the developer of that game in physical sports. They're not like run the same way in terms of like the same business interests, like as a marketing vehicle, for example. They're just very different businesses. And I think the important part of that, uh, towards the like thinking about towards the end of esports, uh, as it is right now, right? Where it's not like over, but it's clearly going in a direction where people are finding out that if they didn't already realize it, that business model was not really feasible long-term. Like if, if you know, as as you said, if, if League of Legends can't make it work, then at this point, like maybe it actually just doesn't work like that. But the, the part that I found interesting, especially in regard to FaZe, was they were one of the, the companies that, that during, and I know I bring up Rainbow Six uh, Siege a lot, but the only, that's only because I was very close to it for a long time and, and got to see a lot of stuff. One of the things I thought was interesting was that a couple of the big orgs would specifically, like FaZe, would pick up Brazilian teams, partially because the game was very big there, but also partially because it was very cheap. They could pay them like a very low salary and it would go 
much farther there. Now it was still not good going that well there. I mean, it was still pretty low pay. Like they were still like not doing great and their computers were, you know, pretty old and things like that. So it wasn't the best, but the part that was interesting about that, that I think is kind of maybe towards where the future of this goes. And, and something that you mentioned about GameSquare was the idea of where these players, because they're being paid so little, would actually realize at some point they would make more money by being an influencer, by by starting their own Twitch stream, by doing that sort of thing. And that's not the same thing you can have in traditional sports. You're not going to have like Joe Montana like playing football in his backyard and live streaming that. And that's like how he's making all his money is people like subbing to his backyard football, right? It's It doesn't work that way, but it doesn't in electronic sports in, in playing video games at home, especially post COVID, right? Like where we had that whole transition where everyone was playing them from home and like even esports tournaments were, were run online. And so it's this sort of situation where if people are making more money that way and you're starting to see more of these brands have content creators they're sponsoring rather than just players, they're starting to be like, oh yeah, I, I play for phase, but I'm not like a player. I'm just a content creator or like I'm just sponsored on my stream. At some point, it starts to make me wonder if maybe we go away from the the athletic team model and more around people that perform well but are performing well in their personal streams and are more content creators. And it's more of a a brand sort of thing rather than a team. So because you see the issues with people transferring between teams, trying to manage like personalities, doesn't really quite work the same as it does traditional sports. We don't have like drafts quite the same way and things like that. And so I think just that sort of disconnect may lead that direction but i don't know that's my that's my personal take is the direction i've seen it go is everyone just being influencers and that's where the real money's at both for these organizations and for the players and this idea of like everyone making money off of the game developer sponsoring these tournaments clearly isn't where it's at which i mean it's ironic because like one of the bigger ones is like counter-strike and valve's like extremely hands-off with that right they're not even running it it's just like when people run tournaments because it's just a popular game and you look at some even the big tournaments where it's just influencers like Twitch rivals and those kind of ones where it's not even really technically the athletes. It's just celebrity tournaments, like a celebrity golf tournament kind of thing. So that's just my two cents on, I think, where maybe it could go to be a business model if it's just going to be marketing anyways. But maybe maybe not funded by the games. Maybe it is like a little bit, but maybe more so by these brands. And I just love that you just suggested that we mash two old school games, Backyard Sports and Joe Montana Football. I see a it's the, it's the new Madden right there. Yeah, for sure. I don't even know who Joe Montana is. I'm imagining a cowboy because it has Mount Montana and it's a wow. Mountie. <laughs> Quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Got it. <laughs> Got it. And that, that's not new. That If we look at, for example, tennis, you win a championship in tennis and then you're going to make more money from the visibility and the mark uh, how do you call it it's not publicity but yeah the brand partnerships that you get to wear their jersey or be in their ads and it's the same for esports players that's where they're going to focus on the revenue so I, yeah i think you're banging on on that Devin. well i think the other do aspect you, too is it's it's really hard to have like the personality show in esports with the way esports are run right because like you you get, you'll occasionally see the people on stage you get these occasional interviews but you're watching the game and the game's not the physical people like it is in sports you can see the the physical sports you can see people do a touchdown dance and the touchdown thing they could show off their personality whereas in like esports you're just seeing the characters they're playing as most of the time and i think that again is like another disconnect on that exactly what you're saying about like trying to carry their personality out in the other thing whereas if they're an influencer kind of person or like a personal streamer like they get to show their personality the whole time like obviously in tennis 
like they're an individual. It's not a team sport most of the time. So like it's a little easier for like someone that's just, you know, one of those angry players or one of those other people with a lot of personality to show that off. It's just, it doesn't, I mean, I know it like in Rainbow Six, it was, it was one of those things where it was like, there was a few really strong personalities and like it got to the point where Ubisoft was like, let's lean into that because that's the only way we can kind of like keep people really interested in this uh, is to have some, yeah. like one player would just even decide I'm the heel of this game, if you're familiar with the term from wrestling, like he's just like, I'm the heel, I'm going to play the bad guy kind of thing, so. Tennis definitely has a few heels as well, and they're fun to watch. We'll see. And I feel like this is a discussion we'll kind of come back to occasionally just because, like, it's a a sort of tangential business to video games that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of struggles in marketing in general in games uh, on different platforms. And this was one avenue for it. And and influencers have obviously really changed how games are marketed in general. Like, we're we're not, we're past the days of running commercials or ads in comic book magazines, like comic books and and things like that. It's, It's very much getting people to play your game on their Twitch streams and stuff now. So it wouldn't surprise me if they just take a different angle on it when they're, when they're looking to market their game and maybe move away from, let's just force this to be an eSport. But anyway, speaking of people uh, having to shift their business models, trying to do <laughs> things new and interesting, whether they're a good idea or not, we'll see. Netflix continuing to also try and be part of games. So Netflix had a great third quarter. They added more subscribers than anyone was expecting. They added in 8.76 million global subscribers in the third quarter. And they did better in terms of earnings. So overall, they had a great third quarter, better than uh, the street was expecting. Now, in part of their investors' call afterwards, uh, they did start addressing the games business overall. And uh, the two the co-CEOs had a number of things to say about the business, where it is today, where they see it going, and, and some of their strategy towards it. So they referred to it as the crawl, walk, run cycle. And they believe they're really just in the crawl stage right now. So comparatively, they don't see themselves of spending a, a lot of money towards the division yet. And they, they do recognize that it's not, you know, driving up like a rocket ship. They're not increasing their game sales as quickly as they are. They're adding new subscribers. And they certainly did try to put uh, sort of the the Netflix view to it. They did claim that the trajectory for adding players is not dissimilar to what they've seen when they've gone into new regions where traditional Western media may not be the strongest, such as going into a country like Japan or going into Latin America. So they see themselves as, you know, this is something that they're going to take their time uh, and they're going to build out, you know, as they go with with realistic expectations in terms of of growth there. Now, they do also suggest that they feel they have, especially in terms of the mobile side of things, been able to actually solve some of the challenges around mobile in terms of user acquisition and discovery. And they believe that they're able to do that through their recommendation platform. So this is the same technology that recommends, you know, based on what you've watched, new TV shows to watch, new movies to watch through the Netflix platform, you know, they're going to be recommending games. Now, one of the challenges they have overall with that is that the games so far have been uh, almost entirely mobile and 75% of their user base or their users use not mobile <laughs> for for consuming Netflix. So they're mostly watching it through their television, some watching it through their PC. 
but only a fraction of the overall users are consuming Netflix content through their mobile phone. And with that, you're also starting to see now, you know, some of the reasons for why they are expanding out and trying to get the games onto smart TVs and other smart devices. So that started off with a small, um, you know, beta launch inside Canada. That launch has now expanded out to a small number of, uh, of subscribers in the United States. So you're now seeing being able to play only a couple of Netflix games uh, on your television using your mobile phone as your controller. So they do recognize where their viewers are and they are starting to try and get the games to where those viewers are or where the majority of the viewers are. So, but they are seeing it as taking a, a bit of time. Now, the other part that they also see have seen as challenges, the types of games. So when they were first acquiring games for the Netflix games platform, they were really, you know, it was, it was a bit of a challenge because you had an unknown group of people or, or people that are very much experienced in the world of television and film, you know, reaching out to game developers and saying, hey, you know, come make games for us. And as you can imagine, there were a lot of people that were reluctant initially, especially at that time, it was still very much a boom cycle for the mobile business. People were a little reluctant to make games for a subscription business where it was unknown as to what the uptake would be by the subscribers. And they had a very short time period in order to get some of those initial games made. So, you know, Netflix was building out the portfolio as best as they could in the beginning. They're now at a point, though, where they've got some data in place and they're starting to see, well, these are the types of games that our players are interested, our subscribers are interested in playing. And, you know, Netflix is known for many things, but one thing they're definitely known for is the creation and using of data. And they are certainly going to be using that to really refine the games that they start bringing into their portfolio and start servicing to their players and having a better understanding over time, you know, what works better for their mobile players, what works better for their TV players. So, you know, over time, I think we'll, we'll really start seeing a, a well-refined machine. Now, one of the big challenges they have is one of the reports inside the last couple of days is that Netflix is still about only about 1% of their overall subscribers are playing games on a, on a daily basis. So even though Netflix has you know, basically tripled their number of titles since last year, they're still needing to work on how do they get their subscribers playing the games. Now, part of that is getting it off of just mobile, where you know instead of you know, if they've got 200, around 200, almost 250 million subscribers, you know, if you're only able to access 25% of them on on mobile, then, uh, you know, obviously going to different platforms will allow you to get to a lot more subscribers. And I think if you look at an overall picture, you know, why is it that Netflix is really pushing into mobile uh, or into games, I should say, sorry, probably the very similar reason as to why they're also pushing in some other areas into the retail streams, into sports. One thing that an, an insider intelligence analyst pointed out is, the more revenue streams that Netflix is able to point to, the better they'll look to to Wall Street as they start, you know, tapping out the number of total subscribers they can have. They need to be able to point to some good news in order to make sure that the um, the stock prices keep going up and up and up. So the more revenue streams, the more areas they're able to make money, the better. And in addition to that, they're still trying to work on engagement. You know, they still see mobile games as being, or games in general as being the opportunity for 
super fans to engage with their content in between seasons. So that's where Netflix is right now. So I agree. They're very much still in the crawl stage. They've hired on, brought on a lot of really smart people. I think that they will certainly start getting there and they'll start using their the vast troves of entertainment data that they've acquired to big effect. They still have the biggest, the biggest challenge still for them is that it does require a subscription in order to be able to play their games. But, you know, they've got a very large subscription pool to start playing with. Yeah, you're talking about the different revenue streams. And I remember reading, I just confirmed that Netflix doing live experiences. So not only the brand partnerships with, you know, e-commerce, clothing, whatever that is, but also, you know, a restaurant themed with Netflix. And so that that shows that they're exploring. Now, I am concerned they're going to use their recommendation system to recommend me games because they keep recommending me horror and true crime. And I don't even watch it. I just like <laughs> I always give a thumbs down to try to teach the algorithm. I don't want to watch this. Stop showing it to me. And it still hasn't learned. And I've been with Netflix for many years, but we'll have to see. In terms of the 1% of players engaging with the games, I didn't know about the 75% being a console. That's a really interesting data point. Uh, in any case, even on mobile, it, I started to play their games when they were first coming out. And it definitely felt like they were focused on quantity and not quality of the experiences. And so it was very hit and miss. Like some some games just really felt unpolished and that maybe they received a lump sum and they got into the store. And so I stopped playing them because I got tired of not having a good experience. And then additionally, the discoverability is hard. It's not even at the top of the app or doesn't even have a button to get there. You have to find it on your mobile where the feed is or, or go to the store. And so just the UX of finding the games. And then even when you find the games, it's just this long list of things you can install. There's no classification or organization i have to like understand what's going on so there's a lot happening here for that one percent i don't think you know it's not just because it's players are on console it's the experience itself on mobile is not great and then the quality is also hit and miss i was going to say something else on on the mobile i i'm part of code coven which, which is as a mentorship program that's done in collaboration with Netflix. And I have the, I've had, had the opportunity to meet some of the, the team, some of the team that works on Netflix developing games. And honestly, I, they are so intelligent and their processes are so advanced. So I'm confident that they have the talents to make some really good games. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not as bearish on Netflix and the games that they're making. They are in the crawl phase. I do feel like mobile was that experimental ground, like you said, quantity to get data and understand how you know their subscribers would interact with it and what their preferences would be to get it running. So yeah, I'm looking forward to when they get out of the crawl phase. Yeah. And just one point of clarification, it's not necessarily console. That that seventy five percent is also the the smart TVs that have the Netflix app that you can oh, play okay. it on. So, just uh, mobile versus large screen. Yeah, um, but that could be through console. That could be through smart television. That could be through like a yeah. There's so thing. much that they can do as well through making it more gamified. Yeah. <laughs> you know, have even having achievements per game and showing the completion percentage. If I saw that I have 
progressed, I don't know, like 60% of the game, I might reinstall it or decide, oh, I haven't found anything that I want to watch on Netflix. I'm just going to quickly play this game and then go to bed. So, yeah, I think it's, it's very exciting if they can execute it well. And so I'm hoping they will and that it is just a crawl phase uh, because I do see the potential that they're chasing. Yeah. I mean, if, I'm not sure if you remember when, like the time between when Netflix announced that they were going to start doing games and then when they started publishing games was incredibly short. Like that was just a situation where Netflix says, all right, we're doing games. And, oh, six months from now sounds like a good day. Go. And so it was like a mass effort just to try and get games onto the platform. You know, I was I was on one of the teams that that put a game out on the Netflix when uh, when it was part of the the launch. So it certainly was not a long time period to try and, and get the games into place. And that being said, you know, Netflix is stuck with those games and allowed them to continue to live ops them. So I would suggest. You know, if if there is a game that you liked for a few minutes in those first <laughs> in those first days, then kind of got tired of it, you may want to try and go back and take a look at it because chances are they've actually probably live dops some and, and improved the game. But I haven't yeah, played I, it, but I, I really want to play the Love Island game because apparently mm. is their best performing game. <laughs> I want to find out why. <laughs> uh, I I. I believe I know what the most uh, the game with the highest engagement is, uh, but it's probably not what you think it is. I can't say which one it is, but you um, can't. No. Oh well, why tease us? <laughs> because teasing's fun sometimes. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's not it's not the dating sim game. Got it. I'm surprised by that. I. Uh, but I do think that we definitely will start seeing, I mean, we've already started seeing it now where uh, a lot of people are going, talking to Netflix right now, they do see the potential in it as a platform for for game companies. I mean, it's it's guaranteed revenue for them. So it, it certainly is something that, especially in today's day and age, something that's very interesting for game developers. Netflix is going to be a lot more choosy now about the types of games they're looking for because they do now have that, beginnings of a library in place and they're going to start looking for the ones that you know either they they need more data on in that particular genre or they know it's a, a genre that does well for their users so what surprises the, me uh, is there's an opportunity that like i would imagine that they would tap into that i don't think they have that i've seen that seems kind of obvious at least to me which is you know they know that the sec the second screen experience is a thing right that people are generally when they're netflix and chilling they're also on their phones right and like i imagine that's part of the why the strategy was like let's go to the phones because that's what's competing with eyeballs on our actual screens right but the fact that they're not so like this is was one, one of the many streaming services that likes to be really pushy during the credit sequences where they're like oh you wanted to watch the credits no no you're gonna watch us advertise our other programs they take up 75 percent of the screen and the credits are going to be like and we're gonna make it really hard to watch them but they don't they don't use that opportunity then to push you to, towards games that you might like related to it as a QR code. Because it's an opportunity where you're on your phone, you're just like, oh hey, I'll just scan that. Boom. Now I'm in the app store. Now I'm now I'm like actually potentially about to download it. If it's like tangentially related to it, like obviously they push the Stranger Things games, right? Where they had a couple of those. Very easy when you hit the end of the season, that's the current season, and you know they're not like there's nothing more to watch. 
like that's a good time to push people to it, right? So they could, as you said, continue to engage with the IP and the experience. And a lot of the, the statements were like about how they want to extend IP and make IP like more part of it. But it doesn't sound like they're trying to do that in a way that it's like either parallel with watching the shows or, or movies or like as, as a like sort of tail end of it or even a beginning of it, or like some of those games that try and do something that's like interactive with the show. Like there's a lot of different opportunities that like seem like easy ideas. And, you know, I imagine they might've thought of a lot of this stuff and then tried it in small areas and it just didn't work. Like it's totally possible if they do tons and tons of data analysis, but I did find it kind of interesting that they started leaning into like console type games, but like old school ones. So like they were touting dead, dead cell in there. And like one of the games that I had picked up from Netflix, just because it was like, Oh, Hey, it's a free copy of a game that I like was that Ninja Turtles, uh, shredders revenge. That was like that, yeah. that retro yeah. one. And it was like, cool. Like I, I could play it for free now. And it's got the folding multiplayer and everything just because basically Netflix is subsidizing it for me, uh, because I already own Netflix. So it's like, it, it didn't really change anything about my relationship to Netflix or my experience or anything like that. But I was just like, all right, cool. Free game. But then they're putting out stuff like Shovel Knight as well. And so it's, it seems like like in the, the Stranger Things one was very much like a old SNES kind of game. So it seems like that sort of like retro, like console kind of experience or, or arcade experience was when they leaned into a lot with more of like the premium style games that weren't like mobile type games. They're more like almost like ports, like Dead Cells was very much kind of a port. So was the, the Ninja Turtles one. And I don't know if that's like done well for them or not, because I, I don't know what the data looks like on that. But I found that kind of interesting that that was like something... They, they gravitated to a lot. And I mean, I imagine Dead Cells must have done well for them for them to bring it up in that, that discussion, that interview. But that's not really tied to any IP that they do anything with, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll do a show, right? Net, Vampire Survivor is going to get a show. Like, you know, I was just watching some of the Captain Laserhawk one that's like tied to Ubisoft stuff with tons of game stuff. Obviously, Cyberpunk on, on Netflix did quite well as well. And I'm sure that's part of how Captain Laserhawk got greenlit was off the success of Cyberpunk. And, it was so good. I just want to... Yeah, so stuff like that, right? Like, seems like there's plenty of opportunity for them to sort of tie those things in better. And I, I don't think mobile's a problem with that because it just depends on how you approach it, the developers you partner with, the type of second screen or or, or primary screen experience that you're doing. Obviously, yeah, like, if, if people aren't playing on a system where they could just suddenly switch into playing a game on that, Thing. And yeah, most people aren't watching Netflix on their phones unless they're like on an airplane or something. And most people I see doing that are doing it on like iPad or something like a bigger screen anyways. So it's like, it's, it seems like there's opportunity. I mean, I'm glad they're experimenting with it because like every, everyone else is like kind of like doing their streaming wars thing and just focus on consolidation anyways. So that probably won't go anywhere. I, I'm not going to see Paramount Plus suddenly trying to get into games. I don't think anytime soon, right? It's just, but Netflix is in the position to kind of be the leader here. So I do hope they continue with that experimentation, like data collection. And I hope they are like a little more forthcoming with, with how that, because obviously they're, they're, they're known to keep a lot of their kind of data close unless they want to brag about it. Then you'll find out about it when it's, you know, numbers they want to share. But, but yeah, it, like the nice thing about mobile, of course, is that like, at least with things like Sensor Tower and Data.ai, we can start to dig into that a little bit and see like what the traction looks like. Like I remember looking at one of the, like the Transformers game they had picked up that obviously had kind of not been doing well and it didn't do significantly better after Netflix picked it up, but it still managed to kind of like keep, you know, the live ops going and things like that kind of keep the game mm-hmm. around. But it also like they end up in situations where they pick up a game like that and they picked it up for being like a, a game that was constantly selling IAP and they switched to a model that's not that. And it gets kind of weird 
No, actually, it was Apple Arcade that was doing that. Sorry, it was similar similar idea though, where they will they take these games that are normally premium, switch over like that, and it's kind of a weird shift. Like the game was designed around pushing the IP and the live ops and all that stuff, and you switch it to a model where it's like not. I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see, and I, and I don't know where else they're going to go outside of mobile. Like I don't I don't see console. Like you're not going to like have a picture in picture unless they make some kind of deal with the console makers to like support like a picture in picture kind of thing where you could be playing a game and like and the thing at the same time. We did have the previous discussion about like there's support potentially for cloud gaming, and you mentioned it earlier with the controllers and stuff. And there's definitely some potential there, but that that seems also pretty iffy. So like I like as we said at the beginning of this, like I'm. I'm sure they're doing interesting things. I just don't know if they know exactly where it's going because yeah. that's what they're trying to figure out with the data. And so I, I hope they figure it out because like, there's definitely a, a space for these two things to kind of collide as people move away from traditional TV and move towards like further even away from traditional streaming into like these sort of shifting experiences where like, as we see, like a lot of the media based off of games doing quite well on these services, obviously it's mixing with anime and stuff where it's, that's, uh, you know, another big overlap with their audience. So that seems to be working well. I would, I would keep that up if I'm Netflix. Yeah. I think one of the bigger challenges they're going to find is that they don't want to get into hardware, which means that controllers for this moment are going to be things that people already have, namely their phones. Phones as a controller, not the best experience. So I do hope that they, are able to branch out and at least, you know, allow Bluetooth, you know, capable controllers. Let me use my Xbox or my PlayStation controller to play. Then then I'll be happy. That um, seems like something you'd have to organize with smart TVs, right? Because a lot of people yeah. are like, I mean, that's what I'm watching all, all the streaming services on is via smart TVs because I don't want to yeah. have to have an external device set up for that. And like even the Xbox X Cloud stuff doesn't have like its own dedicated external device. You have to have a full on Xbox console. It's like there's not like, you know, outside of Chromecast and Amazon Fire Stick stuff, there's not really like this good sort of in between thing. And maybe it could be something they set up with Amazon, but I can't see Amazon really wanting to be friendly with Netflix given their competing service. So that becomes a problem. Like same with if they were to try and do something with Xbox, obviously Microsoft you know, is a, is a competitor there in, in streaming gaming and stuff like that. That makes it kind of hard for Netflix to find a hardware solution sort of thing that mm-hmm. that is compatible with. Outside of maybe if Google decided, you know, Stadia didn't work out, we're not really competing in gaming, they could be an adequate partner with Chromecast and things like that. And like some of that Chromecast technology built into TVs, they built a really nice controller with the Stadia controllers that they eventually started allowing people to unlock into full Bluetooth controllers. So maybe there's an opportunity there with Google. Yeah. Microsoft likes to share more than more than well, the cloud companies. enterprise services. They're bigger part now, I guess they're getting yeah, notice yeah. on. So maybe, yeah, maybe we'll see the CEO and be like, eh, games aren't as important as cloud. And yeah, maybe they'll say, look, if you have, if you have Bill Gates appear, a young Bill Gates appear in stranger things, then we'll work something. Well, now with the fake stuff, the young part isn't hard. So, I mean, <laughs> given what they did with Michael Douglas, even in the early days of that in uh, like Ant-Man and stuff. So uh, I think it's pretty doable for, for Bill. But we'll see. Like a lot of, I think a lot of figuring out happened. Like just, just like with the esports, we're in like a very transitional period with a lot of these businesses as sort of like generations grow up with new technology shift over to new things. The games business is in kind of like semi reinvention sort of stage, I think. So, I mean, it makes it exciting for us to have these conversations, but also makes for a lot of questions where we're like, things are changing, things have got to change, but we don't know exactly where they're going to go. So. Hopefully we'll see, I think over the next couple of years, like some real good indicators of like maybe some success stories 
in this. And I guess we'll keep an eye on what Netflix does, right? Even if uh, you're not a big fan of the games that they're doing, I think keeping an eye on which games are picking up because they have the data to back that up might be a good indicator. I mean, it's like the same thing when they start making Adam Sandler movies and you go, why are they making Adam Sandler movies? And it's like, because they do well. Like they have the data to back <laughs> yeah. that up. Like you can't go wrong with Adam Sandler movies. So like just, you know, same thing with their games. They're, they're going to have data that, that proves it, whether we think it's intuitively good or not. Although I would like to see another Bandersnatch kind of experiment. I'm a little sad that maybe that didn't do super well because they haven't really followed that up. But uh, Man vs. Wild seems to get plenty of sorts of things. So maybe that's doing better than, than I think. Uh, but we'll see. But anyways, lots of, lots of great stuff to explore here. Lots of great topics. I think this is stuff that I, I recommend everyone actually continue to dig into. You know, Check out the Netflix games. Check out what's going on. See what FaZe ends up getting up to in the next few months now that they're kind of uh, probably going to pivot a little bit away from some of the, the heavy esports spending that they've done. Although I do hope we still get G Fuel flavors. That's probably the more important aspect of their business. We did manage to get you know one not that long ago, that sort of Astro Pop one, so opportunity. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Good stuff coming our way, hopefully, from these businesses. But in the meantime, I want to thank you guys for, for joining. Some good conversations, good topics here. Hopefully, uh, Games News will pick up a little bit as well. As we, I think we're going through a little bit of a slow period. You know, Maybe, maybe some people do some crazy things uh, we can cover. In the meantime, I also want to thank, of course, the listeners for tuning in. And uh, in the meantime, enjoy your weekend and we'll catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.